Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. The 2022 Missouri Legislative Session is over, with lawmakers accomplishing the things they needed to get done, such as passing a record budget and a congressional redistricting map, but leaving a lot of other priorities for the Republican majority unfinished. For this episode of Politically Speaking, instead of a guest, we turn to our listeners to see what questions they had following these atypical, at times dysfunctional months. It's the post-session mailbag episode. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host. He is the political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Jason Rosenbaum. And today we're we're mixing it up. We have decided at the end of session to do another mailbag episode and we asked for questions. And Jason, we got questions, right? Oh, we, we got a lot of good questions from Reddit. Again, the, the Missouri Politics Reddit page from Twitter, Facebook. We got somebody who emailed us. I think you have the invisible mailbag in front of you, Sarah. Why don't you use your, your magic... Uh, <laughs> magical powers to pull some questions right, out. Right. I'm dipping my hand into this imaginary mailbag. And oh my gosh, we have a question. So this one is from Vice Admiral Walrus, who says, with most of the Senate Conservative Caucus running for Congress or some other office, is there a feeling that things will change in the Senate once Honor, Moon, et cetera, are gone? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. Just because if you've been following the Missouri Senate, especially since like 2011, there has always been a group of Republican senators who have agitated against Senate leadership. And it usually flux fluctuates as far as size goes. But I don't think that dynamic is necessarily going to change just because uh, Senator Bob Onder is leaving due to term limits. And you, you can't necessarily guarantee that Senators Mike Moon and Rick Bratton are even going to be gone because they may not even win their primaries for Congress. As well as Burleson. Some of them are running even against each other. If, if I'm now that's am I correct on that? No, you are. Burleson and oh, Moon yeah. are running against each other. Well, there you go. So there's at least one guarantee that one of them is going to come back. And so and even if someone leaves, such as uh, Senator Bob Onder, who's termed out, that doesn't guarantee that the person following him isn't going to be a part of that faction. In fact, uh, here is Senator Bill Eigel, who will be back because he is not running for anything and he is not term limited about his predictions about the dynamics. 
First of all, I would say that there's personality conflicts every year. Uh, we saw them a little bit more on display this year. We have the tension of an election year. We have the tension of those redistricting uh, questions that remained unanswered. And honestly, it was impacting and slowing legislation. And a lot of folks have priorities they want to get to and they want to get done. So yeah, we saw that come out. But I think the Senate's going to be fine and we'll be get back to work uh, as soon as we come back together in January. I don't know if I'm as optimistic as Senator Eigel that the Senate will quote unquote be fine um, as long as the Senate allows for unlimited debate and possesses what it what I would classify as a strong filibuster for both parties. There's there's always going to be contention. I just think that this session was kind of an anomaly as far as just the amount of tension. Like I've said to people since. I started covering the legislature full-time professionally in 2007. Really, the only other comparison I can make is 2007 when there were a bunch of previous questions over a bunch of controversial bills. But those were fights between Republicans and Democrats over policy. Like, this was not about policy, in my opinion. This was about personality conflicts and Republicans— accusing each other of not being conservative enough, basically. Is that your take too, Sarah? I mean, yeah, I, this is my first year covering legislature. I covered one in, you know, a couple of years ago, but now I'm back. So this is my first one. But, you know, talking to other press corps members, kind of like, this is unprecedented, right? And a lot of them are like, yeah, this is, this is a level of dysfunction that we have never seen, uh, at least in our time covering it. And yeah, it is really, it was a personality clash and it was a clash of you know, filibustering the journal because they were, you know, because someone was unhappy about something that happened last week. Uh, I actually kind of was was messaging some press corps friends, kind of like, what was the craziest thing that happened? We lost a day and a half in the Senate because Senator Mike Moon wore overalls on the floor. And we lost about a day and a half of productivity because of that. You know, it just was definitely a different year. <laughs> yeah. And I was on leave then, but I was actually listening to the Senate debate with with Bosenbaum just for sheer entertainment value, um, I think that I was more entertained than her because she usually fell asleep during Senate debate. All right. So the next one is any insight into why Caleb Rowden ultimately caved to the Boone County split in the congressional map? I would think, and Sarah, you you maybe have better insight than me on this, that it was just a way to move the process forward. Conceptually, splitting Boone County in half doesn't make a huge amount of sense. But I think it was necessary after Jefferson County, which was originally in the third district that's represented by Republican Blaine Luchtenmeyer, was then moved to the eighth under the Senate plan and then eventually was split between the third and the eighth in the final map. Like you have to make up that population somewhere. Boone County has a lot of people. So splitting it between uh, the third and the fourth made sense. Here's actually Senator Rowden talking about the, the reasoning why uh, the map had to pass when it did. We knew this was important um, and, and we had um, gone to considerable lengths over the course of time to ensure that at the end of the day um, that, that we would not be a part of an embarrassment that would lead to uh, pr- presumably a panel of liberal federal judges uh, drawing the Missouri map, I, I think ultimately, um, you know, personalities always play a critical role in a lot of stuff. But ultimately, I think cooler heads prevailed, and that no one, uh, I, I really, frankly, on either side of the aisle, um, wanted anybody else other than the folks uh, within this chamber 
to have the final input on the map. So um, we were prepared to do whatever we needed to do because we thought it was that important. I'll be brutally honest, and I know that some Democrats in Colombia are not going to be thrilled with this honesty, but there really is no way to draw a congressional map that includes Boone where Boone would be in a Democratic district. It, it was possible in the 1980s when a lot of rural counties, especially in northeast Missouri, were more Democratic. But those counties, Democrats are barely getting 30 percent in them on a good day. So I don't really think it matters from in a long term perspective, but I definitely understand the agitation that this large county in the middle of the state is now split between two districts. So our next question comes from Rhythm Jones, who asks, is the right wing infighting going to be the new normal? If so, will the ranked choice amendment, if passed, lead to a possible tripartisan legislature? And if so, would the moderate Republican form a coalition with the Democrats? I don't know. First of all, what what Rhythm Jones is referring to is this ballot initiative that will likely be up for grabs that would convert the state into what's known as ranked choice voting. And I think that conceptually, the proponents of that feel that that system would lead to candidates for the state legislature and statewide office, who I guess are not as extreme on both ends of the, the of the political perspective. But I don't know if that's going to pass. Like, that's going to have some real opposition to it from especially Republicans. So let's get that out of the way before I actually try to answer the question. Um, I think it's certainly possible that Democrats and non-conservative caucus people, especially in the Senate, could form coalitions. You kind of saw that a little bit with the women of the Senate standing up and decrying the conservative caucus. And let's just be clear, like Holly Rader is not a moderate liberal person. Now, certainly she takes some positions that depart from her colleagues on needle exchanges and prescription drug monitoring programs. But she's also like very much opposed to abortion rights. She was speaking out against vaccine mandates. We had her on on the show and she explained the reasoning for that. Um, So I think that it's going to be one thing. But I think that another split that is going to be inevitable, too, is the split between the House and the Senate. And we kind of saw that uh, play out again this year as it has in previous years. Here's House Speaker Rob Viscovo talking about his disappointment that the Senate actually adjourned early and killed a bunch of priorities that House Republicans had propelled. Well, it's not about us not working with them. I think that, um, you know, disappointment. I was disappointed that they adjourned. I think all of my colleagues uh, are disappointed they adjourned. But let's be frank with each other. They haven't been working in cohesion with each other all session. So what would what who would have said they would have accomplished anything in the last 24 hours anyway, with all the fighting that they've had amongst each other? Sarah, what do you think about this? Um, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Uh, You know, you're talking about coalitions. It makes me think of the incredibly impromptu and sudden news conference that the Senate held after uh, members of the conservative caucus were holding up. Senator Holly Rader's um, sexual assault survivors bill of rights. Um, and it was a, there was a controversial amendment and it was uh, Senator Rick Bratton's amendment. And he at the time wouldn't back down. That led to a news conference that I don't remember how many, but it was a bipartisan coalition standing in front of the Senate doors, condemning members of the conservative caucus. So at that point was the midway point, which is 
um, atypical, unusual, uh, to say the least. And so seeing that dysfunction, I think really did cause kind of, there was kind of at times it felt like three members or three parties within the Senate. I mean, at the end of the week, there was always a news conference from the Senate and sometimes there would be three groups. It would be the Republicans, uh, Republican leadership, and then the Democrats and then the conservative caucus. So there, you know, that alone kind of indicates there's definitely kind of this wide split. And it's interesting using Viscovo's uh, quote because you know we asked him one if he had a heads up about the senate adjourning early and he said no and then he was immediately asked if he felt that the senate respected the house as a body and he said no so that was kind of a one-two punch there to kind of talk about where these different bodies are um, right now within the legislature and as one parting thought before we go to the next question um i think that despite the dysfunction over the past couple years by all measures Speaker Viscovo had a very fruitful speakership in terms of policy uh, enactments, like getting uh, education savings accounts across the finish line last year was a major, major accomplishment, um, as well as a number of other things that I know the House has been agitating the past for years. But there was definitely tension between the House and the Senate at times, and also Viscovo and Governor Mike Parson. So that'll have to be part of his legacy as well. Our next question is kind of a fun one. I really like it. Uh, it's from Daniel or Daniel Jones, who asks, rank the top five legislators in terms of effectiveness of achieving their agenda. Wow. So I have a list. <laughs> uh, I saw that question and kind of did a quick thought. So I know you kind of have some thoughts as well. So my first person um, I listed is Senator Dan Hageman who is the appropriations chair in the Senate. It's not going to be a surprise, kind of my one and two. The budget is one of the biggest accomplishments, I think, at the legislature this year. I don't think it's even close. That and actually getting a map over the finish line. And I think part of it was getting those Senate agendas. I know one thing he wanted to see was millions in investing towards rural roads, and he got that. And he was able to really craft this budget alongside the House to, to address a lot of Missouri's needs. Uh, so my second one, kind of hand in hand, but less effective than Dan Hageman, was Representative Cody Smith, who's head of the budget chair in the House. I think he, a lot of times the House took kind of a lesser spending position um, when it came to negotiations, and a lot of the times they went with the Senate position. So that's kind of why he's a little less. So following uh, Representative Smith, I have Senator Holly Rader, even though kind of one of her big pieces of legislation this year, which was the needle exchange program, um, or kind of just legalizes said programs, uh, that was defeated, but she was able to get a sexual assault survivor's bill of rights across the finish line and a lot of things that she kind of was advocating for at least got really close or they did pass. So I would say that she's kind of third. Um, I have to give a shout out to Dan Shaw, Representative Dan Shaw, because he was able to get a map across the finish line, which we were not sure was going to happen. Um, and it took two different house maps to get there. Um, and then finally, I'm just going to say in general, Democrats, when it comes to the budget, they were able to put in a lot of programs and a lot of money towards things that they care about and can go home and talk to their constituents about. A lot of those were bipartisan, but a lot of them, in order to get up to that upper funding, did require Democrat advocation. So I don't have five, and because some of the people that you mentioned are on my hypothetical list, Senator Dan Hageman is probably the most effective legislator in the building. Because uh, not only has he handled the budget, but he also has handled a lot of other very consequential pieces of legislation since he returned to legislative service in 2015. Another person that I think I would just mention is Senator Andrew Koenig of Manchester. Absolutely. Be because he is an example of somebody who has very set ideological goals 
that he has been very open about when he campaigns in what is, for all intents and purposes, a, a competitive Senate district. And he's been able to accomplish quite a bit of them, not only as a member of the Senate, but also as a member of the House. So in addition to being like one of the best political campaigners in the entire state, I think that he's also showcased an ability to bridge divides between the the, the, the factions that we talked about um, and get a lot of consequential legislation done. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody likes the legislation that he's able to advance. Like he was the handler of the abortion ban that will be going into effect if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And I know a lot of people absolutely detest that bill, but it ended up passing without a a previous question in 2019. So if we're just talking about from a legislative legislative strategy point of view, uh, that has to be mentioned. And I also think that he was pretty influential in trying to break the redistricting impasse uh, as well. So uh, that would be one of my choices, but a lot of the people that you mentioned would probably be on my list too. Yeah, absolutely. It was Koenig's map initially that was the one that crossed the Senate back in March. Um, and I know he had a lot to do with the charter equity funding bill. So I think you're right. He has a lot of kind of fingers in a lot of jars and trying to figure out how to reach compromises and get bills across the finish line. So our next question is from Alex on Twitter. Considering the overall tenor of the session and how little got done for better or worse, how did we end up with a budget that's seemingly both broadly popular and successful? Now, before I'm going to let you answer this question, Sarah, because <laughs> you followed the budget. But I do want to play a clip from Senate Appropriations Chairman Dan Hageman just explaining some of the conceptual things that are in this budget. We did have a lot of resources this year to be able to do some transformative things in the state of Missouri, and we certainly hope that that is what comes about. Uh, a lot of one-time dollars from the federal government that we uh, directed towards one-time uses, which typically are capital type of improvements, a lot towards water and wastewater uh, in the state of Missouri, broadband expansion, um, you know, a lot, lot in higher education, you know, a lot of transformative uh, projects on all of our uh, higher education campuses, as well as the uh, you know community college campuses and, and state tech campuses. So, Sarah, I mean that I think that the re- the answer to that question is the reason the budget was able to pass with bipartisan support is the state had a ton of money. That's exactly it. I was not, I found myself nodding along to everything uh, Senator Hageman was saying. Yeah, part of the reason why is Missouri has a record amounts of revenue right now. And and not only that, you know, federal revenue to spend. So I think just with that amount of money, I think kind of the question is, well, do we put it all in, you know, in our treasury and our savings account and have to justify to constituents why we didn't spend it on programs? Or do we spend a lot of it? You know, Missouri still has, you know, money left over. It's not like they spent everything this year, but a lot of money was able to go to things just because there was this opportunity. I also think in part, some of the credit goes to Governor Mike Parson for crafting the first iteration of this budget. It was a budget that Democrats actually really liked and were kind of trying to advocate for on more occasions than even Republicans. And so I think kind of that factor of this is something the governor will approve of, even if we kind of spend more than we initially would, you know, think we would feel comfortable with, I think combined with just support of it being an election year with a legislator saying, hey, I got to take this home and this is now for my community. I think that was a big factor. Uh, I just think there's a lot going into it, but I think it all comes down to just there was money to spend. And we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. 
from the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. My co-host today is Jason Rosenbaum, political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. And we're doing a post-session mailbag. So we have more questions. Jason, are you ready for the questions? Oh, I am so ready. I think you're going to really like this next one. I I just have have an inkling. (laughs) This next one comes from Knock on Wood on Twitter, who asks, what happens next with the U.S. congressional redistricting? Is MO2 and MO3 truly going to stay as proposed? And if not, what does the process of challenging it looks like? And what's a likely scenario for November midterm elections? If it can be successfully challenged, how long does that take? There's a lot of redistricting questions. I'm just going to throw them to you. All right. So I'm actually going to be doing a story on on this eventually about the next phase of this redistricting melodrama, which will likely be in the courtroom. Um, I think there's been a lot of misconceptions about what is litigatable in congressional redistricting on Twitter. If you read the Missouri Constitution, there really is only one thing that people who do not like the map can sue on, and that is whether the map is compact or not. And unfortunately for people that do not like the second district or the third district of how it's drawn, Missouri does not provide a lot of specificity about what compactness actually is. And I want to just also combat some uh, untruthfulness that's been going around on Twitter. There is specific language describing compactness for state legislative redistricting that talks about squares and hexagons and all that stuff. But that does not apply to congressional redistricting. There has been really this is this is just the bane of my existence, Sarah. And I I have been trying to speak out about this for years. But there has been, I think, this misconception that congressional redistricting and state legislative redistricting are the same when they're really two separate systems that are governed by two different sets of constitutional principles. And I think that the reason why a compactness lawsuit is going to be difficult is that there was a lawsuit about the map that was in place for 10 years, saying it wasn't compact, saying the third district wasn't compact, and the fifth and sixth districts weren't compact. And the Missouri Supreme Court ruled that that map was constitutional, primarily because there is language in the Constitution that says districts have to be as compact as may be. And those words, as may be, allows for a little bit of uncompactness. Now, not everybody agreed with this. I'm going to play a clip now from former Missouri Supreme Court Judge Ray Price, who was on the podcast in 2019, who talked about why he disagreed with this ruling. Politicians have all kinds of pressures, and they try to get the votes however they can. That particular map favored one Republican and a Democrat. So it was bipartisan in that sense. It was not uh, drawn for one party or the other, but to favor two sitting politicians. And I think that was just as much of a problem as anything else, because the map compact and contiguous means the lines ought to be sensible, not uh, squiggly. So I was talking with somebody who was involved with that case, Jim Layton, who's the former Missouri Solicitor General, who is now in 
private practice. And he actually won. He, he was on the winning side of that case. I want to make that clear. Uh, but he says that some things have changed since 2012. First of all, there's different people on the court. And Ray Price was a Republican appointee, and he did not think the map was compact. So just because somebody was appointed by a Republican does not mean they're going to find the second and third districts to be compact. He also said that unlike 2011, there were a lot of alternative maps that were proposed but never enacted. Here is Jim Layton talking about that phenomenon. I don't recall us being able to to, uh, to, to make, make this kind of a history. Somebody would come in and say, okay, here are a whole bunch of different maps that are acceptable, that, that, that at least were, at least some people in the legislature thought met the, the constitutional criteria. And, uh, and, you know, some or many or all of those uh, are compact, are more compact than what we have, uh, uh, what they ultimately enacted. And so I think there's an argument to be, I mean, I think there's more ammunition uh, than there was 10 years ago. I'm not positive of that. I just think that may be true. As a parting thought, because I don't want this podcast to just turn into a redistricting filibuster, um, if a compactness lawsuit is successful, I am unsure about whether it will change anything for the 2022 election. Well, I spent a lot of time over the past month talking about the scenario if a map had not been passed on the last week of session, that most likely a panel of federal judges, as Senator Rowden alluded to earlier in the show, would have drawn the map. Um, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft had argued that this this legal precedent known as the Purcell Principle would have applied, which is a principle that says that judges do not make major changes to maps close to an election. I think that the Purcell principle would apply here, that I don't think judges are going to want to throw out a map close to an election. They may throw out the map in 2023 for 2024, but this is all speculation. First, like a compactness lawsuit has to be filed. It has to be actually successful. And it has to be decided either this year or sometime in the 2024 election cycle. That's kind of what I see going forward. And I I think that the redistricting story is not over, but it's really going to move to the courtroom pretty soon. It's funny, Jason. It's not the first time that I've heard a redistricting uh, filibuster. So you're totally fine. You were under the time limit for sure. Good, good, uh, good. <laughs> So our next question, it's a bit of a long one, so I'm going to kind of try to abridge it. It comes from Pickett Lima, or Pickett Lima, who says, Observation. Since term limits were instituted, it has appeared to me that the lack of experience by so many provides an entire lack of useful support for decision-making, communication tools, or mentoring, if any kind, that kind of facilitate the work of these groups. This also creates a them-and-us dynamic, where these folks mainly only know others of their own party. So we're going to scroll down a little bit. Isn't there a reason successful corporations value all levels of experience and see to it that employees have positive experiences with one another while doing the hard jobs? And so what kind of collaboration skill building could possibly be injected into, I'm assuming, both the House? This person makes a really interesting point in that term limits were brought up to uh, kind of a lot on the House floor near the end of session because it was there was a resolution that would have requested that Congress, U.S. Congress, implement term limits. And there was kind of a bipartisan opposition to it saying, no, no, term limits are terrible here because, again, it caps that 
institutional knowledge at eight years. And that's, you know, it seems like a long time, but really it's it's not when it comes to building policy and, and, and crafting and changing the state. One of the people I talked with about this subject off the House floor was State Representative Jason Chipman, a Republican from Steelville. And he has blamed term limits for a lot of the dysfunction. But he also made the observation that because there aren't like these all-powerful legislators with a lot of institutional knowledge, it has kind of some unintended consequences, as he explains right here. I've heard it said that politics is Hollywood for ugly people. And I think people get up here and get an overinflated sense of themselves, you know, uh, and you have a lot of people in the rotunda pushing a narrative, oh, you're the best, you're the greatest. Uh, but really, they have, they have clients to serve. Um, I really think that if we were to do away with term limits, it would solve a lot of the problems that we have because we wouldn't be up here trying to hit home runs. Here's what I, I think about this. I don't disagree that there are serious unintended consequences because of term limits, and it, it saps away legislative institutional memory, and it frankly empowers lobbyists, and I guess people like me who have been around for more than eight years, this is year 16 for me, so I guess I'm more powerful than the Speaker of the House, <laughs> but I feel like continually complaining about them is a cop-out because term limits aren't going to go away. And even if they're modified, which I think is very questionable because it would require voter approval, they're going to be modified in a sense that just somebody could stay in a chamber longer. They're not going to be completely removed. And I think that they're on the other end of the continuum. I'm from Illinois. I don't think it was a great thing that there was a Speaker of the House longer than I was alive in Illinois. Like Mike Madigan was able to do a lot of bad things because he gained so much power through longevity and was able to hold that above everybody else's head. So I'm sure that there is kind of a sweet spot between really restrictive term limits and no term limits. But I feel like this conversation is kind of theoretical because I don't see it changing anytime soon. Next question is on House Bill 1878, which we both know is the bill that actually implements a photo ID requirement in order to go to the polls and a bunch of other election provision stuff. So this person asks, House Bill 1878 has so many provisions that limit the ability to register people to vote and voting generally and asks us to talk through you know, this bill for people so that they're fully prepared. I, I think that it obviously has the resuscitation of the photo identification requirement. Uh, I was looking through the language about having to register with the Secretary of State's office in order to, like, I, I, I'm just putting this out there, go door to door and register people to vote, for example. I think that there are more restrictions on, like, giving people absentee ballots. Um, and there's also, like, barring third-party entities from giving election authorities money so the, the big example of that was there was this group that was headed up by Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and they gave election authorities money to deal with the deluge of early voting ballots in 2020. I actually talked with Eric Fay of St. Louis County about this at the time. It, it was not being done for like a shadowy, nefarious purpose, although certainly opponents of it were implying that. It was just because like more people were using absentee ballots that year than any other point in Missouri history. And I think that they needed more people to actually deal with that. Um, it also has uh, no excuse absentee in-person voting for two weeks. And I've been, I've, been, I've been more aggressive on this point than usual 
on this show because I know this comes off as commentary or editorializing, but I really think it's the truth because I've talked with a lot of election officials about this. The current system where you have to mark down a specific excuse in order to get an absentee ballot does not work. People lie all the time. There is no way to prove that somebody is not actually out of town when they say they're out of town or they are sick or incapacitated when they're not. And what it really does is it it provides this belief to the voter that they're going to get in trouble if they lie when they're when they're not going to. So in sense we already have no excuse in in Missouri. We just have a excuse-based system that is not enforceable. But I think what's important to note here is because this bill has a, as a non-severability clause as state representative Joe Adams explains in this clip uh, that no excuse in-person absentee period may not actually happen. Uh, the bad thing about that two weeks um, no excuse uh, voting prior to the uh, election, it's tied to the voter photo ID. And if that photo ID is struck down, that two weeks of early voting is also uh, gotten rid of. <clears throat> I, I do believe in fact, I, I know that soon as the governor signs that piece of legislation, there will be some lawsuits dealing with it. And uh, the lawsuits in the, pa- in the past have been successful in striking down that move of photo ID. And I think there probably will be again. So we'll have to see. But yes, I agree with Representative Adams. There will definitely be a lawsuit over this bill. I think it's an interesting point to bring up the idea of the no excuse and how people lie. But I do think that it is going to embolden people to do no absentee or no excuse absentee voting. When I uh, worked in Arkansas, I did an election based story on how all of these, you know, election authorities were handling, you know, huge mail in ballot. Uh, increase, you know, increases and and absentee increases. And the governor and secretary of state held like a joint conference saying COVID-19 is an excuse. You are okay to check that box. And I asked um, one of the authorities kind of, does that make a difference? And her answer, and I'll never forget it, was there are people who don't go 65 into 60 and there are people who don't take the tags off of their mattresses. (laughs) And for those people, you know, it is going to really make the difference of, well, now it's no longer illegal. Even the ability of possibly getting caught is enough to cause people not. So I think that will make a difference for some. I agree. And I have actually talked with voters who said, I will not go do absentee voting because I don't want to lie. So it has real consequences. But I, I think we need to be honest with people that there are no real legal consequences for putting down an excuse that's not actually true. So we got a uh, we got kind of an impromptu question as we were recording, which is really fun. Um, And this one comes from Senator Lauren Arthur, who asks, will the governor agree that the projects I added to the budget are worthy investments? No, he's going to (laughs) veto all of them because he does not like you, Senator Arthur. Like, I don't know. I can't read the governor's mind, but. You know, what do you think, Sarah? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's very fitting. She used a a GIF of kind of the magic eight ball. And I think that's as accurate as I could be about that. But I think in general, the governor is going to sign off on a lot of investment projects kind of as a whole, not specifically Senator Arthur's because of this extra spending and a lot of the plans that he already had in the budget. So it'll be it'll be super interesting to see what makes it and what doesn't make it in this budget, provided we have all of this money. 
So our last question, and Jason, this is for you because this is not my genre. <laughs> this comes from Jonathan R on Twitter who asks, what early 2000s emo screamo song encapsulates the session? So Sarah and I were at Eastside Tavern over the <laughs> over the last week of session. And there was Multiple this- times. And there was this guy who was singing this song by Bring Me the Horizon called Medusa, and it was just him screaming for four minutes. Um, I'm going to pick, even though I don't think that's early 2000s, I'm going to pick that one because I distinctly remember in the 2000s going to see Bring Me the Horizon open for Thursday, and I got, like, kicked in the shin and elbowed in the face during that show. And I think that a lot of legislators who went through the 2022 session probably had a similar experience to that. That is all the time we have. Our mailbag is officially empty. Thank you for submitting all of your questions. We really enjoy doing this and and look forward to another one in the future. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. You can follow Jason on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And that's it. Until next time, so long. 